do we call this? I am Miriam Tinberg, one of the two hosts of the podcast. I did CLS 2012 in Amman, Jordan, and then a Fulbright to Morocco 2014 to 2015. This is a special episode because we have the two other women that do the podcast with me. Um, if you guys want to introduce yourself. Um, my name is Ashley Reibenbark, and I did the CLS program in 2014 in Hangzhou, China. Um, I guess a little bit of my background. It's it's so weird being the one to answer these questions as opposed yes. to give them. <laughs> um, but I graduated from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 2014 with a double major in Spanish and Chinese. Uh, I then went to get a master's in management from Wake Forest University in 2016 after doing a gap year Um doing a little bit of teaching abroad in China. And I currently work as a learning and development specialist for Protivity, which is a global financial services firm. And my main focus in doing that is diversity and inclusion, curriculum development, um, and seminar delivery. Hi, everyone. My name is Sana, and I also did the 2014 Chinese CLS program in Hangzhou, China. Um, and a little bit about myself, I gra graduated from Kalamazoo College um, with a degree in East Asian Studies and then went on to my master program um, at American University studying international and intercultural communications um, and then also did a certificate program in Chinese and American Studies. So I'm currently working in um, youth development and doing grant management work. Very cool. I love that you guys, so you met on the CLS program together. We did. Yes. <laughs> we Gosh, I can't back. believe how long ago that was now. Six years. Going on six years. Oh. Yep. Um, I mean, I'm like, a, I did mine in 2012. Like, what does that make me? It's crazy. <laughs> One of my good friends um, I met on CLS and we were just talking like we're damn near 10 years of friendship, which is insane. Um, life changing. The, the trip we don't need to. We, that's a given. Um, OK, so I think this episode is very interesting because you both went on the same program and probably have very different experiences, I would imagine. Um so I think we're going to get into that, but I think to start to let the people know, since this is kind of, you know, an audio medium, and I know that Ashley, you're on the podcast a lot in Sunny, you're sort of the, like the wizard in the background. So people, people don't really know um, much about us. I think it would be useful to start with who's on the call with us, who's in the room. If you each wanted to just summarize your identity in a sentence. I think that um, in this, episode, I really wanted to just highlight um, kind of my experience of being a Hmong American um, person of color who went abroad, but then realized that because I am from an Asian, like, background, um, sometimes people misunderstand and they think that I'm also Chinese, but I'm mm. really not. So just kind of talking through that and like, navigating a different culture and language even though I um yeah even though I have the same ancestry as them so that was really that was really interesting for me to just experience and live through and then decided to do it again for the next two years of my life um after CLS so <laughs> oh um 
That is, that's a good question. And I wish I had been as proactive as Sana and come up with a well thought out answer ahead of time, um, especially in terms of identity, because I, for those of you that can't see me and that are just listening, I am a white female cisgendered person. So I guess, you know, when I think about diversity in like a demographic sense, I don't feel very diverse. Um, then again, if you're thinking about the word diverse in, in relation to whiteness, it's like, I don't know, I don't want to get like too deep in the conversation. Um, but I guess in terms of personally, you know, I, I'm very passionate about topics around diversity and inclusion. So I like to think about myself as an ally. I also don't like labeling myself as that because I feel like that could also be very like, oh, I'm an ally. Look mm -hmm. at me, you know, mm -hmm. which is not my intention at all. Um, so it's it's kind of a struggle because I I almost wish I could be the interviewer listening to your story, Sana, and almost don't like that our stories are juxtaposed in that way because I want to be able to hear your story. At the same time, I think this will be interesting to folks that are listening to the podcast who maybe think that everyone going to China has like a one size fits all experience, which is not true. I think our experience, at least from talking to people who are Asian that go back to China and learn in that environment, it is very different than my experience as a white person. So I'm looking forward to hearing from you, Sana. Um, that was a very roundabout way to say that I guess I'm still kind of trying to figure out my identity. I mm -hmm. personality wise, I, I do consider myself like a learner. So I love learning about other people. I love learning different perspectives. And so that's what I'm going to try to bring to this podcast. I'm very curious about learning your perspective, Sana. Yeah, I mean, as we spoke about before at the CLS conference last year, and I think with Kelly in the last episode, who had this really multifaceted um, interesting identity. I do think, especially in this country, we're so easy, so quick to be like, racial is our identity. Mm -hmm. So I like that an identity can be, I'm a sister, I'm a runner, I'm a podcast listener, I'm a millennial, I'm a whatever. So I like that you said learner. I think that totally suffices. Um, I think in this context, like you said, Sana, you were like, in this context, on this episode, I identify as among American women. I'm very interested um, if that is how you, if someone in another context were to ask you to identify yourself, if you would change the answer. And I think thinking specifically about being in a Chinese context, what would have been your answer when you were abroad on CLS? Yeah. So yeah, that's a really interesting question because when I was abroad, people asked me like, oh, what are you? Because they really wanted to just hear me say, oh, I'm also Chinese, but I'm Chinese American. Um, and so I would just go with the straight up, I'm American. And it would like freak them out because they're like, you do not look American. You're mm -hmm. not white. You probably are um, Chinese. And then they will go into the question of, so where's your mom and dad from? Mm -hmm. And then I would say, oh, they're, they, they live in America, um, <laughs> but they're from Laos. And because Laos is um, like one of the least developed country, it's not as like well known. Mm. So people don't actually know where Laos is on the map either. <laughs> so it was really hard for them to think about like people from the South, but then also look Chinese. Cause usually if you think Southeast Asia, they're, they're also Asian, but they're darker Asians. Mm -hmm. And so, but I am, I'm a lighter Asian. So they think, Oh, she's probably from Japan, Korea, 
or somewhere in southern China. But yeah, I just say I'm American, and then I have to explain that whole story of how my family migrated to the U.S. and then how I became American. Um, and then some people they did accept it. Um, they're like, okay, I got it. But a lot of people push back and be like, oh no, you're Chinese because. You know, maybe your ancestors are from China, and they just wouldn't accept it. So then I learned after going through this experience over and over for me to just say I'm from Thailand. <laughs> so then they would just accept it right away. <laughs> Or I would say I'm Korean, but I got adopted, and 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 so I lived in America, and then and then that was it. And I just can't speak Korean. So that was kind of how like I taught myself to like navigate these kind of situations because I just don't want to go through that experience over and over and try to reeducate people. So, so yeah. I have so many I have so many thoughts about that. Um, <laughs> would you say that you? Okay, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this question. It almost sounds like when you were in China, you were trying to push your Americanness. That was that. That was like the main thing that you were trying to convey. And in America, do you find that you are trying to that your that your Asianness is one of your um, like most obvious identity markers when you talk about yourself to other people? Is it like that that person like did you feel I don't know how to say this without being like a leading question, but did being American become more on the forefront of your mind when you were in China, and then being Asian was almost like less ranked in that way or something this is a bad way to phrase that question but I'm just curious how the weighting was between the two yeah exactly so in America I felt like I'm I'm more Asian so whenever people ask me oh what are you I usually go to I'm Hmong I don't even add the American part to it I just like I'm Hmong and then I explain to them We're an, we're an ethnic group we don't have a country we just live around the world as like a diaspora group And then when I went abroad to in like to an Asian dominant country where it's just all Asian people, then my identity then became I'm American, and that's it. I don't even include the Hmong part in there. I'm just like I'm American. But I think for me, I I didn't grow up learning that I was American, even though I lived in the U.S. my whole life. Hmm. Um, It hit me when I went to college. So I went to a predominantly white college, and because there is not a lot of diversity on campus, um, although if you look different, all all of the students were international students. So because mm. I was Asian on campus, everyone assumed I was from Asia. Yeah. And and then someone explained to me that I was American when I told them I was Hmong. And they couldn't understand that, so they're like, "What country is that?" I said, "Well, I don't have a country, but I'm actually from Minnesota." And then they're like, "Oh, you're American!" And then it hit me like, "Oh, I'm American." <laughs> it's amazing but, how, just listening to you, and it's never really dawned on me that when people ask me who I am, where I'm from, my identity is never questioned. But it sounds like every time you give an answer, it's like, well, no, that's not right. And it's like, well, yes, that's what I'm telling you. Like, <laughs> why, why when I say I'm, you know, Hmong, are yeah. you telling me, no, you're Chinese? Like, that's yeah. mind-blowing. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I can see, I mean, it's almost obvious now how like that would make you feel less than, right? Like you, whereas Ashley, your story in China is never questioned, right? You just right. look like the archetypical, archetypical, archetype, <laughs> the archetype, that seems right. very wrong. Um, the archetype of an American, right? You're right. just white, you're blonde hair, blue eyes even, or no? Yes. Blue eyes. <laughs> you're like, yes, I have it all. Yes. Um, oh my God. And so I'm wondering like how those conversations, cause I know Sunny, you said you were just annoyed with how, how often people would talk about your race. And I, for me in Morocco, it was a similar situation, albeit very different in some regards where people did not think I was fully American. They thought I was Arab or half Arab or something. And that of course worked in a positive in the way that I think yours was more like interrogation than mine was curiosity, I think. But even still, I started just making up lies cause I was tired of it. I was like, I'm half Jordanian. Like I live, I don't, my dad is like Arab American. I don't, so I like speak with an American accent, blah, blah, blah. Like you come up with the whole thing. But for me, it was humorous. And for you, it seems like it was not life or death, but it was like, uh, in order to survive and like be, have a positive experience, I have to do that. So yeah, Ashley, I'm wondering like if you had the same level of because you also look, you look different, right? And in some ways you look more, much more different than Sana being in a Chinese context. So I'm wondering if that, how much that was weighted in your experience, like having to prove your identity or talk about it or um, discuss how you got into Chinese. And if that was something that was exhausting for you and overwhelming, or if that was enjoyable or how that played into your day-to-day being in China. Yeah. Um, and it's, I, I feel like with my identity in China, it's been kind of a learning journey. Because I remember having this moment, I think it was uh, the last time I was in China, I was teaching English. And, uh, you know, I feel like people will sometimes come up to you and kind of speak to you in English and be like, oh, hello. And you'll try to start a conversation, but it's more, they're just interested in maybe getting a reaction. And I, I, there was a time when I sort of felt like I was the, like a zoo animal kind of getting poked at with a stick for a reaction. And I remember telling someone at one point, I was like, I know what it's like to be a minority now and to stand Mm. out and blah, blah, blah. And I I had a moment after that where I was like, wow, that's such a terrible way to think about things. Because in China, yes, I maybe stood out as quote unquote a minority, but I was never treated like minorities are treated here in the States. I was, it was always, you're up on a pedestal. Let's take pictures with you. If someone, if I say ni hao, it's like, oh my God, your Chinese is so great. You yep, know? Yep. So I've never had the minority experience truly that folks here in the States have had. It's been a very privileged experience in China. Um, and I've tried, you know, and I, I never really realized until I went over there so much, how much whiteness is associated with America. Right. Because I'll have friends over there that are black. And it's if if you come up to me and say, oh, you're American, but you look at them and you're like, nah, you're from Africa. Like it's such a weird juxtaposition. So I did have to, quote unquote, struggle with this idea of identity, but it was never like a really weighed, like weighing on you kind of struggle. It was just kind of a path of realization. But I've never had to feel like Sana, like you've had to feel where I've. And again, I can't, I'm not going to assume how you, <laughs> how you felt, but I've, I've talked to friends that said it's, it's such a struggle. There's such sort of a anima- animosity or passive aggressiveness. If you don't know Chinese right away, because it's like, you're Asian, you should know this. Whereas with me, I just get this, like, get out of free jail card, this free pass of like, ah, oh, foreigner. That's cute. Good job. <laughs> Whereas it's, that isn't a given to you, which is super unfair. So 
Yeah, yeah. that and answered your question. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, definitely. I, I felt that too. Like, I talked to some of the Chinese Americans that went abroad to China, and their experience is totally different from mine too. Because even though we look the same, but them being Chinese was actually um, sometimes even harder for them because they're like, yeah. this is my people, this is my country, and I can't speak Chinese, so I'm here to learn. But for me, I still have like a little pathway to say, oh, I'm not actually Chinese, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> like if I get it right, if I get it wrong, I still have a path mm -hmm. because I'm from the Southern Asian countries. And so... Yeah, it, it was interesting to see that and talk to them, kind of how they navigated their identity as well. Because um, they, they didn't feel the need to reintroduce who they are, what they do. They just say, I'm Chinese. And then they then have to deal with all a, a different set of questions. Whereas me, I have to try to re-explain that I'm not Chinese and then get asked where I'm from. Why am I there? What am I? What am I trying to do? And so, yeah, it's, it was just a really different experience for everyone. And I imagine you both had different experiences too, given how you look. That maybe people actually didn't want you to do your whole story. They were just like, "This white girl speaking Chinese—that's so interesting." And would mm -hmm. make like maybe you actually got more conversation out than you did, son. I'm just sort of. I don't know um, if that was something that you thought about at all, if that was noticeable. I understand what you're saying. I definitely have the spiel that you get lulled in this false sense of security. Like my Chinese is so good. And it's like, oh, well really that three sentence introduction is super good. And then you kind of yeah. get pushed off the ledge and have to like stumble your way through the next parts of the conversation. But I don't, again, I don't feel like it, with me, it was ever really explaining about my identity. It was sort of me prompting like, this is where I went to school and this is me and this is this, but it was never someone being like, no, like, like what, what are you really? Yeah, yeah, the only thing I ever got was um, a lot of folks thought I was Russian, which was funny, but never again, exhausting. Like, no, I'm not Russian, I'm American. How many times do I have to tell you people what makes me look so Russian, you know? It sounds like we're talking a lot about how people, how you feel you know, how we feel inside about how we identify and then how others perceive our identity and then how those perceptions f are internalized for us and that becomes our reality to a certain extent. Like there's so many layers when talking about diversity and inclusion. And I know, Ashley, you work in the space too. So I'm very curious to know kind of if you've come to a conclusion about um, a definition. But I I'm, I'm, would love to hear you all just, you know, in a quick summary um, how would you define diversity and how would you define inclusion? Because I know they're they're very buzzy right now and they they mean two distinct things and I'm still sort of trying to wrap my head around what that means. But would love to just hear from you all, you know, on the on the um, spot, like what your what your definitions are of those. Ashley, if you want to take it away, since I know that this is maybe not to put any pressure on you, but I know that maybe you have a little bit more experience oh, articulating Lord. this stuff. <laughs> um, or maybe yeah, not, sure. and that's part of the whole thing. Is like we don't know what it is, you know. Yeah. And I, I, I love what you said about separating them because I think especially I've noticed in the business world, people like to lump them together as just kind of one thing. They're like, ah, oh, diversity and inclusion. They'll even say, we have a lot of diversity and inclusion at our company. And I'm like, what does that mean? Um, <laughs> I know it, it, makes, it makes me cringe a little bit. Um, 
But yeah, like you said, I, I also view them as two separate things with diversity sort of representing various facets of your identity, whether that be more demographic facets like outward things, your race, your gender, um, sexual orientation, religion. I know some of those aren't always outward facing, um, but also various aspects of your personality as well. So like I said before, I consider myself a learner. You consider yourself a sister. Um, and so various components that make up one's identity. And then I see inclusion. I love the definition. I've gotten this from a couple places where inclusion is this idea of uniqueness plus belonging. And you can't have inclusion without both of those things. So you have to foster this sense of uniqueness where everyone's unique perspectives, um, various identities are valued within the group, where they also feel a sense of belonging, that what they are doing is contributing to the group dynamic and forwarding the group. Um, and I also think about this idea of psychological safety as well, which is where mm. you feel that you can bring your full self to whatever group that you're in, that there's this high level of trust. Um, so that's, that's the way that I view it. Um, Sana, I'd love to get your take. Yeah. <laughs> I think that diversity and inclusion is so important because we meet different people every day and we can learn so much from them. The only thing I will add is that diversity and inclusion can also mean being a person who's willing to have a diverse mindset and be mindful and accepting towards other. And sometimes we do need to be able to create those safe spaces to start dialogue with people who are different from us. And I think that probably, Ashley, to your point, that diversity seems to be everyone's talking about it. Mm. Like, I, I think the part that people are missing now is the inclusion, the what do we do when we have all these diverse voices and perspectives in the room. And I don't think we're there yet to fully be inclusive. And I think when talking about CLS, um, there's a long way to go. I think CLS is really doing efforts to recruit and that's fine, but I think they, there is stuff to be done to make sure that it's a far less white, um, uh, four-year institution educated, like, you know, there's like, like everyone's in the same age. There's a lot of stuff that I think CLS can do better, but I'm, I'm wondering from your experiences, and I know we've been talking a little bit about your kind of comparative comparable or not comparable experiences in China, but I'm wondering on the program itself, if you all felt, and I think like part of being an alumni on these programs is being able to be critical of them. So I don't mm -hmm. think this is particularly controversial <laughs> that we're right. doing them a service by talking about it and trying to make it better and that they would want us to do that. But I am kind of curious what you all, because it's such a unique situation that we can compare both of you, both, you know, mm -hmm. both of your experiences from the exact same program. It's like a um, control group, basically. So I'm wondering on the inclusion aspect, not even really talking about China, but on the program itself. Um, I don't know how much time you both spent together if you saw each other's experiences on the program, but um, would love to know more about what you thought CLS is doing or not doing in regards to the inclusion part of this. That's so interesting. Uh, Sana, and I, I'm really curious to get your take. I... <clears throat> I feel like you and, and again, I don't want to speak for your experience, but I feel like you and I may have been a little bit on like the fringes of the group. <laughs> that was me too. So I'm just like, yes, you get, yeah. Whereas people weren't nice, but I don't know if I felt a really centralized, like cohesive group dynamic. 
I think there was sort of, and I think it was also very much split into the different interests people had. So San, I feel like while you and I may have not hung out all the time or been in like the same little groups, I feel like our groups were way more interested in like the depth and complexity of China and learning about Chinese culture and the language. And then you had, everyone was there for different reasons. You had kind of, and I hate stereotyping, but like you had kind of the, the business majors that were there to Mm -hmm. Do it for the business major, you know? And then you kind of had us when we were more interested. I feel like we had a lot maybe stronger connections with our Chinese, like our Chinese counterpart buddies, our, what did we call them? Our, um, like our language tutors. Language tutors, yeah. Um, Chinese so, buddies. Yeah, Chinese, <laughs> and I still keep, oh, I, I love my Chinese buddies so much. Um, do you still talk to them? I do still talk wow, to them. Wow, good for you. She's, um... I feel like if Lan Lan and I lived in the same country, we would like be like BFFs. Maybe that's from my perspective. Wow. Maybe she's like, thank God I'm not with that chick anymore. <laughs> but like anyway, pity, I love Lan Lan. You back. <laughs> um, no, I, Lan Lan and Chao Ren, I feel like we had a, I don't remember who your buddy was, Sana, but I feel like our buddies were probably buddies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also on the fringes. Yeah. So I, yeah. I don't know. And I don't, I don't, I'd have to really think, sit and think about, the comp so, like the competition. So your of our mind group. sort of went to like the interests that people had, that that's where you took that, which is very interesting interpretation. And I obviously wasn't really thinking about that, mm -hmm. but I think that's a very fair assessment. Yeah. Sana, I don't know if that was sort of where your mind went or if you um, were thinking a little bit differently about the group dynamics. Yeah, I think I think for our cohort specifically, it was kinda of like you do your own thing and then if people like tag along they kind of do but for me like I didn't feel included with the American cohort mm -hmm. just because um a lot for a lot of them it was like their first time experience in China so they really wanted to go out do everything but it was my second time in China so then I am already like at that point I was already fluent so mm -hmm. I can just do my own thing, go out, and then I wanted to spend more time with my Chinese partners so I can learn more. Like, I wasn't interested to do all the touristy stuff. I was interested to be in the classroom and just talk to my language partner. Um, and so I kind of just, like, did my own thing, and then, um, yeah, and I was just, like, studying every day because classes were really hard <laughs> and we were in the middle of nowhere so <laughs> there was like nothing else to do oh wow our that's CLS program was fascinating it's so interesting so, I don't know if you feel this perspective it's so interesting to talk to folks that do CLS today because it is a wildly different program than what we did because mm -hmm. Sana's right we were out in the middle of nowhere we didn't have a language pledge we what? didn't live with our roommates. We you didn't have we didn't, a language pledge? We didn't, no. And we didn't live with our buddies either. We lived with each other, yeah. like our American we did. roommates. Yeah, we did. We lived with Americans too. But we had to sign a thing that we would have gotten kicked off the program. Not actually, but probably maybe. Which is If great. we spoke English. Yeah, we, we didn't. It, it was just, I don't know if they were still. I mean, it wasn't a bad program. I do feel oh. like I learned a lot. It was an interesting dynamic. But it's very different than what I feel like most CLSers yeah. have experienced. We had our own little, we were like an hour outside the city. We had our own little bubble out there on the mountain. Yeah. So. Wow. We went I to agriculture school. <laughs> we went wow. Whereas I was in agricultural school. Oh, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting because I was in a capital city. Granted, your town was probably bigger than my whole capital city, <laughs> but I think there were like 2 million people, um, which is maybe a lot actually now that I think about it, but that's half of 
Jordan, Jordan's whole um, population. But um, yeah, and we lived together in apartments. And so we like definitely broke the language pledge then, but we weren't technically supposed to. That's fascinating. But to your point, Sana, I do think I've always thought this about CLS and Fulbright and all these programs that there needs to be more training and more educating and education done to and with the, the people who go on these programs, um, the people who work on these programs in the States and then on the ground in country um, and the language partners, like everyone who's worked because the language partners need to understand and the teachers on the ground need to understand the identities that the students are coming from. Um, the people, the staff on the ground needs to understand like if a student is deciding, like one person on my program was coming to terms with the fact that she was gay and had this whole year in the program set up and she was gonna stay the whole year and then realize that she couldn't. She couldn't keep this secret from her host family anymore. And no one knew how to deal with it. None of the teachers knew how to deal with it. Her, her allies were us, the American people, but I. I don't really that's not even my experience at all so I don't know how to deal with that either and I was just like there needs to be a better way than her quitting the program and that happened on Fulbright someone left the program too because they couldn't deal it was you know mental stuff um but Morocco was crazy and I don't think she was like really expecting that and didn't have a way to deal with it like not like a therapist or otherwise you know someone who was able to talk her through these experiences and so I don't know if you all had this but one of the biggest gripes I have at these programs, and I hope that it's different, um, is that I have been educated like three to four times by white, cisgendered, probably straight, middle-aged American guys talking about how to be safe as a woman in the Middle East. And I'm just like, what are yeah. you like? And it was, it's always about how you dress and victim blamey, like to the max and also just ignorant and stupid and, um, I feel like I can't remember if I've talked about this on another episode, but how the most impactful thing was when we had a Fulbright panel when we first got to Fulbright about uh, with some Fulbrighters who were still there from the previous year. And one girl was talking about how she um, got like harassed by one of the policemen and she was like, don't trust police. <laughs> like, and I was just like, that's very interesting. I've never heard something so explicit and so blunt and so honest. And she was talking about how if you look Moroccan, you're going to have an easier time. If you are a guy, you're going to have an easier time. If you're Muslim, you're probably going to have an easier time in some ways. And I just found that to be so refreshing and so different. Um, and sometimes it needs that brutal, like uncomfortable honesty. So I don't know if any of that resonates with you all. Sorry, I went off, but I just feel like there's a lot to be done. And I, I've seen like incremental growth in some ways and who they're recruiting for these programs and the language that they're using. But I'm still seeing so much more being done and more conversations being had on the, the Instagrams of like Fulbright Prism for the gay students who are going, um, Fulbright Noir for the black students, um, Fulbright Salam for the Muslim. Like they're having such better conversations and it's similar to CLSAS like do we have to start these all the time maybe that is what it is I don't know or are there systems in place to start these conversations for us I don't know if you have any thoughts about that but that's always been frustrating for me I just think that um the CLS program we're just not there yet um because we're we're newer we're younger we only have 6,000 alumni um and a lot of the time there's there's not a platform or um like a focus group for people to like talk about their experience and we have just started it um so we still have a long way to go and i think that this podcast is just one of the ways to just like help open up discussion hear what people experience um where they are in life and how they move forward um but yeah definitely i think that 
maybe we have to be the leader in this space and pioneer it through some yeah. of these hard conversations. Um, but yeah, we're just not there yet. We don't have the resources. We don't have the networks. Um, and so I think that if we talk about it more, just being blunt about our experience um, and being able to be a resource to other people who's going through similar experiences um, can really open up the this diversity inclusion space for CLS people. Um, and I think too, at, at just like the very base level of it, it's getting people from different backgrounds, whether it's different racial backgrounds, very sexual orientations, gender, to be on these programs. Because mm -hmm. it not, I mean, mm -hmm. I feel like it's as simple as just getting more people on these programs because then it shows people abroad that America does not equal whiteness, right? It's various identities. And then those people can come back and then lead the orientation. So it's not always kind of, sorry for the stereotype, but you said it yourself, the stuffy white dude that's like, you need to dress right. You know, like it can be people of different backgrounds giving their experiences. And I, there's that idea that it's, and I'm, I'm having trouble remembering what it was that it's, it's all about representation and like seeing yourself. So if you see people, for example, people of color traveling abroad, it'll make you want to travel abroad and kind of chart that path. So I think it's all in recruiting people from different backgrounds. And like you said too, um, Mary, I'm not just the four year institution, but taking people who have extraordinary experiences in other areas to, to be on these programs. Yeah, I agree with that. But I also am like, why would anyone who doesn't feel supported or included go on these programs, you know, right? So like, I, I totally agree that the, I think one of the way, only ways to do it is to get these programs more diverse in all of the ways, spanning all of the identities. And then like you said, there's a more diverse alumni pool to, to pull from and it'll inspire other people. But I'm also like for these, are these students then just like guinea pigs to make mm. the program more diverse, right? Because if they right. go on these programs and don't feel um, safe, protected, um, represented, supported, whatever it is, like, so it's sort of like chicken in the egg because mm, a program mm -hmm. can't operate in a void where they're making changes, but they don't know what they're making changes for and about, but they also need the changes in order to embrace the people who are going on these programs and protect them. So it's kind of like, this is where I get really confused in diversity and inclusion, like stresses me out because I'm like, how do you enact change again? I don't really get it. <laughs> I guess you need people like us and all of our various identities, people that we've interviewed on in the podcast, those of us who are willing to kind of take the burden of educating, of which not everyone has to or should. And there are some people who just don't want to. And I think that's obviously as mm -hmm. fair as for those who do want to. We have to speak louder, especially you and I, Ashley, and make the changes so that people further on will feel comfortable and safe but I'm just like I want the program to do better before they get to reap the benefits of having a more diverse pool but I'm also like maybe that's stupid because I just have a lot of white people in a room trying to make changes so I don't really know mm. <laughs> but um yeah it's the ever-ending the never -ending, I like, like cycle I like how you said chicken or egg because that's so true it's like do you maybe hire people that can make those changes or do yeah. you just make it organically by getting more people from diverse backgrounds? And also, I'm. this is a total side note, but I am really struggling with this whole idea of diverse backgrounds because it's like diverse in terms of what? 
I've I've been reading this book um, that's absolutely phenomenal. And for all of you listening on the podcast, you should definitely read it. It's um, White that Fragility. That was a sexy voice. Whoa. Oh. <laughs> Wait, oh. this is the best. That was the best book that I read in 2019. White Fragility by Robin. Yes. This, this I still think about this book months later. Yeah. This is phenomenal. And so yeah. I'm, I'm even just struggling with all of it. Again, someone that works in the DNI space, all of my preconceived notions about DNI and sort of like, we talk about diversity, but diversity in like compared to what, right? Compared to white people. So it's, I even feel like getting on this podcast, I don't even know like how to begin these conversations because it's like everything I thought I knew is, but it's good. It's good to like, question your notions of different things but yes that's that's my shameless plug on our podcast today is go out and read white fragility because it's amazing wait so what's the say the subtitle i think the subtitle is so powerful i <laughs> loved fragility. reading it in public. yeah it's great white fragility why it's so hard for white people to talk about racism by robin d'angelo oh god it's so good it's yeah so good. um yeah, I mean, we talked about this after the CLS conference. We're like two white ladies talking about this stuff. So, it, But right. we shouldn't be silenced, but we should just, I mean, we should keep chugging along, but just read more, ask more questions, mm. be, be less assuming of things. But um, yeah, I mean, that book blew my mind. Um, okay. I have, Sorry, there's so much back. more we could, <laughs> no, 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 there's so much more we could say. I think in talking more about China and diversity and inclusion, I am kind of curious and again I think you both will have slightly different experiences with this but I'm curious if how you felt and you were at Hangzhou you said was an hour away from a big city so that in itself is not China it, like China is huge any country is huge you can't say like how is x country dealing with it but I think particularly in a place as big as China we're talking about specifically Hangzhou the areas around it whatever but that part of China maybe but I'm wondering how you thought that that how diversity and inclusion was addressed in your experience in China um and actually, we'll just start with that. Yeah. Do you think that I'm curious what what good things, if any, did you see happening systemically from, you know, culture, infrastructure, whatever people um, and what things were you surprised by or negatively impacted by when it comes to specifically issues of, of diversity and inclusion? So I think Hangzhou is a interesting city because it's 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 a it's comparatively developed compared to other cities but it's considered as a third tier city so like first tier is like beijing shanghai that's the cities that are most developed has all the infrastructures most likely you're going to find someone down the street that speaks english um so the third tier is it's cities that are trying to get to that first tier where people want to move there want to build their homes there and where we are located, it's like one hour from the center of the city. And I don't think they were equipped with mm. diversity inclusion skills. They more of just like doing their day to day. And then all of a sudden they see all these foreigners and then just like thought, oh, they must go to the school that's nearby. We obviously know they're international students, but we're not sure why they're here. Um, and so throughout our classes we did have projects where we have to go out into the community to interview mm. people on um like basic research that we were doing so a lot of a lot of them were like how do they view education systems um how do they raise their kids what what do, what does family mean to them because we were trying to do um a we were trying to gather the community at this 
bookstore so we could talk to them about our American life and compare it to kind of like their life and have like an open discussion. Um, and so we will go out every day and try to like do our research. Um, and so that was when I realized that the community was not prepared for these kinds of answers. So mm. one, one of the questions um, like a classmate did was, how did the parents feel about homeschool and or being enrolled in an actual school? And so because they were so close minded, they're like, oh, the kid have to go to school. Like, that's what they do. Like, they never consider homeschool as an option. Um, and like for uh, one of the other questions I had was like family. Like I was trying to to do a research on what did um, people in the community think about what makes a family. So in the U.S., you might have like two moms or two dads. But they never thought of that. They're like, oh, you have a mom and dad, you know, with the grandparents because all of them have only one kid. So everyone lives together. <laughs> um, and they're not very diverse in thought. Um, and so then for me, like, I thought that was a space for me to educate them and say, hey, in the U.S., like, we have these kind of families and this is how we live life. And then that kind of sparked a conversation and allowed them to speak more. But getting to that point was also very difficult because they're like, oh, I don't want to influence your research. Like, I don't have any opinion because I don't want you to mess up oh. my own school. <laughs> so I said, no, it's okay. Nobody's going to know. I'm just curious. What do you think? You know, I'm doing this as my homework. I'm not submitting it. It's just I'm I'm trying to gather information. Um so that I would, was really, yeah. That's very interesting because so much of diversity and inclusion is getting things wrong and questioning things. So I almost wonder if if a culture is not a culture of questioning and pushing back against authority and um, getting things wrong, if talking about diversity and inclusion stuff, like it wouldn't work well that there would be tension because so much of it is unknown and there's no right answer. Whereas I think in American society, we're like pretty fucked up in a lot of ways, but we do have when thinking of like the educational systems, this culture of group work or question the teacher, push back on stuff, challenge each other. And I think that that probably lends itself well to, well, not that a lot of people, specifically white people are comfortable talking about diversity and inclusion, but we have as a culture, I think the ability to talk about this stuff yeah. and the systems in place to actually have productive conversations. We just don't have the vocabulary, but I can see how in a place where you, like you, you saying that they were like, we don't want to mess something up. And you're like, yeah. there's no messing up. We're just like trying to have a conversation. That's fascinating. I never thought about that before. Yeah. 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 And I think it's neat to look to at the different, I don't say priorities, but different focal points of DNI in different countries. So like we've talked about this, but race is very prominent in the States given our, history of slavery and how like the ramifications to today you have places like japan where it's a relatively homogeneous society so like gender is more at the forefront um so and, and then china i read somewhere is more focused on the different regional differences so i know my project was on like the hukou system the household registration system and how yeah, without getting into too much of the history if you are from a different city in china or a different region and move to another region of china you don't get the same rights as the people in that city um it's almost Whoa. like moving from a different country so if you live out in luzhou out in the sichuan province and you move to beijing 
you don't get the same housing access, your kids don't get the same schooling, you don't get health insurance. So there's a lot of differences in discriminatory practices based on region. Um, so I think it's interesting kind of tying it back that we, we talk about, we have the, kind of our focal point. So like when I go to China, I look for differences, like how do people treat each other based on race? Cause that's sort of the focal point that I know as opposed to these regional differences. So my memories of China, when I'm thinking about that, I know on, um, I'm kind of taking a left turn here a little bit, but we had, I don't know if Sana, if you remember, but there was a population on campus of African students. Mm -hmm. And I will never forget how like the animosity that the Chinese students had toward them, not even animosity, but more like fear because there had been one or two instances where the African students had gotten mixed up in something. And I just remember a student telling me, you really need to like avoid those African students. Like they, there's just not good stuff going on there and it's very dangerous. And so it's interesting in the, the different lenses. I feel like China isn't maybe necessarily wired for those, at least now, for those ra those conversations around race. Mm -hmm. It may be more focused on other aspects, like the regional differences. Um, but that was really poignant to me. It was like, wow, I'm, I, I think in America people may think that, but they would never really say that out loud to one another, right? Which, which one is worse, right? At least you're kind of getting out in the open in China where you're internalizing it in America. Anyway, I digress, but it was yeah. interesting to look at the the different ways in which these conversations conversations around diversity and inclusion are approached. Wondering how going to CLS, going on CLS, going to China, change the way that you view race, colorism, or as you said, Ashley, maybe it's not even about race. It's just um, different identities and different stories. If that's sort of affected the way that you work, that you are in relationships with other people, that you live your life, however it is. And I don't know if, if you can tie it back to CLS into that experience directly, but I'm just curious, sort of the pre-CLS, post-CLS development of you both. So for me, um, I would say post-CLS, um, I think because I had to go through that experience of like re-educating everyone over and over again about how I'm Hmong and how I'm American, um, I think post-CLS has made me become more aware of like, maybe I have to be um, that person that does eventually educate people about who I am um, I know that sometimes it could be it could be a lot um, and I'm always seeking like acceptance like I need you to accept me for who I am but um, I learned that after post CLS that that's not really where I should be thinking I should be mm. I should be it's okay they don't have to accept me but I just want them to know you know, it's like giving them that knowledge and then however they deal with it is on their own book because my responsibility is first teaching them but and not expecting them to just accept me. Um, and then I would say also post-CLS, um, just to be more conscious about my surrounding, who am I interacting with um, and how I present myself because that self can have a lot of um, misunderstanding and also create um, 
tensions between people. And as long as I'm aware of those things, like I can then put myself in a position to educate them about my identity and who I am um, and without like offending them or not being considerate. Oh, that's very interesting. So you're more cautious of revealing things about yourself? Like you're more Mm -hmm. aware of who the audience is? Yeah. Do you think that that's like, do you have an opinion one way or the other if you think that that is good or bad? I don't know if that's the right word, but is that something that you feel one way or the other about? It sounds like exhausting. Yeah. (laughs) Stressful. But also self-preservation, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it can be. But I learned that, um, like, if I, yeah, if I reveal certain aspect of myself based on my audience, it actually helps me cope better with my identity. Because then I'm not always saying like, oh, I'm this or I'm that or like quickly identifying something. It's more of like, you tell me first and then I can tell you something so that that way it's more of like, yeah, I understand you and then now you can understand me. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And Ashley, what about you? How has going on CLS changed your perception of who's around you and um, identities and stuff like that? Yeah, um, I think CLS in, in one sense did help, and I, I discussed this at the beginning of the podcast, but helped me realize the differences in, like, again, minority experiences. And I want to say that it is tempting for white people to go on these trips to be a minority and then to assume they know what that experience is like in the States. Like, I know what it's like now. And it's it's not that. It's I think being a minority in China is a very like privileged position. It's not like a disadvantaged position as it is here in the States. So, I mean, it's, you're, you're basically kind of treated like a movie star. It's always taking pictures and hold my baby. Well, no, I'm actually asking people to hold their babies. That's because I love babies, but um, (laughs) I'm always like holding babies and taking pictures and, Oh, can I touch your hair? But it's not the same. Like, Oh, I've had people ask me to touch my hair. It's the way it's not the same, right? It's right. it's very, very different than a person of color's experience. Again, and I've never had that experience in the states, but just from what I've heard, it's very, very different. So I would just caution white people. <laughs> again, and I know there's intersectionalities, but I would caution people when you're going abroad at CLS to automatically assume that you have that quote-unquote minority experience. It's a very privileged experience in China. Um, and to, again, continue to use that privilege to help educate other people. Yeah, I think that sort of ties into my last question, which is what words of wisdom do you have to students who are, let's say, minorities um, and or just students who are students from visible minority groups, let's say, going on CLS? And I know, Ashley, obviously your perspective will be different from Sana's, but I think it is equally as valuable. Um you know, what we were talking about before, like, no one's prepped properly or educated properly to deal with this stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm curious if you all could impart any wisdom on people going, given what you've learned and processed over the last few years, if you have any advice. You know, for me, if I could go back and tell, get, give myself advice, it would be to be an advocate for others on your group um, or even people in the community. Uh, I really wish I could go back to that moment where 
the the friend that I was with was telling me about these African students and stay away from them and they're dangerous and just had a conversation about it. Like, well, why do you think that? Mm. Let's let's process yeah. that. Because I think that could have been a really good learning moment. But in that moment, I I was scared. And Sana, I think I I give man, you've got so much courage. I, I just hearing the way you talk about like having to constantly combat with people about your identity, you know, and pick your battles in a sense. I I would say to people that are in my position going abroad is to have more conversations with people that aren't in your position and discuss ways that you could better support them. That, you know, if, if someone asked, was continuously questioning your identity, someone, you know, I could have been there to be like, well, why are you asking her these questions? She's American like me. Like, you know, so I, I'd say that continue to practice that. We talk about this, but practice that allyship and use your position to advance the conversation in ways that could potentially enact change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And an advice that I would give um, to like future minority of people of color going abroad, I would just say um, like, don't take everything personal. Um, not everything is about you. It's just people that come from a different background. They have different level of education um, and they're just curious. So don't be offended um, and be willing to face difficult situations and conversations um, because because we come from a different um, set of values. Sometimes like we want to impose our opinions and our values to the other person. Um, and I think that, that that might not be the right way to go. So just be more open-minded to other people in the group or to the local people. Um, and then also my last advice would be to just take a step back. Sometimes when there's like too many mm. cook cooks in the kitchen, mm. you just want to step back, you know, put a pause on it, come back. Um, yeah. And if, if somebody is like asking you too many questions in that moment, like one one strategy that I use is just like make it about them. You know, if they ask you a question, you ask them a question right back. Oh, that's good. So that they they feel uncomfortable as well, and then they'll stop asking you these hard questions. Um, and so then, um, yeah, and that's kind of like how I like manage whenever people question me, like, oh, what is Hmong? And then I go into the whole, oh, we don't have a country. And then I ask them, like, oh, so where are you from? You know, and get to know about them. And then they're like, oh, I'm from this small town or I'm from this other city. And then I start asking them, well, so how did you end up in the capital city? You know? And they're like, never mind. I don't want to yeah. know. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. It makes them uncomfortable, too. <laughs> that's, a re I've, that's so funny. I've never thought about that. Throw it right back on them. They'll stop real quick. Yeah. Yes. Guys, this was so good. This is a great podcast. Thank you so much fun. for being on it and taking time. And it was nice to get to know you both a little bit better. Thank you all for listening to uh, what do we call this? Um, I forget what the outro is, but. It's okay. I'll copy it. We'll add the outro. <laughs> in. 
Thanks so much, everybody, for listening to our podcast today. We want to give a special shout out and thanks to CLSAS and CLS Ambassadors for supporting this programming. And if you guys want to learn more about CLS or CLSAS or be on future episodes of the podcast, go to clsas.org and then the media tab. And thank you, listeners and participants of the pod, for being open-minded and willing to jump into these tough but important conversations. Thank you.